And the reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Um, you can either look it up in your Bible or it's in the um, sheet of paper you probably got given as you came in this morning. So, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he, said, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. I wonder whether we have heard the Christmas story so many times, we can almost feel that we can complete the sentences before they're finished, almost feel as though there's nothing sort of more to know uh, about it. Uh, And so this morning I have no clever points to make, I likely have nothing that's original. Uh, But the Christmas story is one of contrasts. Because you might think that God would want to come to the great and the good of the world, the wealthy and the influential. But the thing we see this morning is that the story of Jesus' birth shows God's extraordinary grace given to very ordinary people. Turn with me there just to those first few verses, verse 26 to 30. And what we see, I think, is that ordinary parents are shown extraordinary grace. And there's something very remarkable in the telling of this story. And what is remarkable is how completely ordinary and unspectacular these parents and this location truly is. Uh, In 2023, Luton took the undesirable title of England's worst town to live in. One local describes Luton in this way. Luton makes Slough comparable to the Playboy tax haven of Monaco. I have a picture of the both of them for you to get some sense of that. Uh, Somewhere there, hopefully. Aye, there we go uninspiring, bleak, drab. Well, Nazareth is the kind of place you wouldn't expect anyone of real significance to come to or to come from. Of all the places for God to send his son, you wouldn't have thought it would have been Nazareth. 
And you wouldn't have thought it would have been to these people that he would trust raising his son. But it shows God's extraordinary grace given to ordinary people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth was a nowhere town. In fact, city here is very, very generous. By no real measurements would you call it a city. It was a backward and backwater place. And Galilee had a reputation as being full of migrants who had watered down the sort of sense of Jewish purity in culture and in religion. And so it was very often called Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And that that wasn't a neutral term. That was said in a very negative light of them. And this is the place to which Jesus comes. Uh, For a modern kind of uh, equivalent, um, in Wales, Cardiff is referred to as Little England. Again, that's that's not a term of sort of endearment. That's, That's a scathing rebuke on it that really it's just full of us posh Uh, moneyed English people. Galilee was not the place you'd think the Son of God would be raised. He was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. This is an unspectacular couple. Joseph, yes, to be sure, has a distant heritage in the line of David, but it's distant. He certainly doesn't enjoy any of the trappings or privilege of that distant relation. He's just a carpenter. And we like in modern ways to sort of reimagine that as if he's some sort of master craftsman, but the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. In fact, that might actually betray the fact that we're just so desperately uncomfortable with the reality he may well have been exactly what that word meant in the original language, which is a laborer. He wasn't some spectacular artisan builder. He was just a builder. He has the most regular, everyday, average of jobs you could possibly have. And I think that is intentional. That this is someone who otherwise, there's, there's no details about him that make him particularly special. You'd have met ten a penny of them going along the streets in Nazareth. And Mary, the most it can say of her is, she was called Mary. <laughs> there is nothing else but to say about him, spectacularly ordinary. These are ordinary parents shown extraordinary grace. And Jesus' birth story is right from the beginning here flipping society's values because he's not coming to the great and the good, but the average and the unknown. Joseph's link to David is much like us sort of searching on ancestry and you sort of realise that you have, you know, 15 lines before you, some connection to a king or a queen somewhere. Uh, You know, that might technically be true, but nothing of your life really reflects it now, does it? And if you hadn't have sort of gone in there, you'd have never have known. Now, there's nothing spectacular about them at all. The commentator Joel Green says this, Mary's introduction is striking. It's as if she were an orphan. No family background is provided. She's betrothed to Joseph, but as such has not yet entered into his house or inherited his status. Yet she is favoured by God, though for no apparent reason other than God's gracious choice. And that is exactly what Dr. Luke wants to get across to us. 
that God has graciously chosen for no other reason than that he is extraordinarily gracious. And so there is a startling reversal of fortunes and status here because the lowly are lifted up so that the great, the great Herod, the great Caesar Augustus might be brought low. And he came to her, Gabriel verse 28 it says, and said, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. And this is an important little verse for us. Because there's a way of reading this where what is extraordinary is Mary. And Mary somehow is a giver of grace. So the point is about how awesome Mary is. And then there's the right way of reading this where the focus and the emphasis and what is extraordinary is the grace that God is giving towards Mary. So the point is about how awesome God is. We know that that's the way to read it because Mary tells us so herself just a little while later on, verse 48 of this chapter. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. It's all about very ordinary parents being shown very extraordinary grace. The one other time that we hear this phrase used is Ephesians 1 verse 6 where Paul says to, to the praise of God's glorious grace with which he has blessed us. It's the same word as that little phrase, O favoured one, with which he has blessed us. The blessing, the grace is coming from God, not from out of Mary. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, we're told, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And I think Mary may just have come from a place a bit like where I grew up, where this sort of politeness and positivity appears to be just too nice an introduction. This is not usually the way people are greeted. What am I to make of this? Who is it that you think you're speaking to, Gabriel? And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And Mary hasn't found favour because there's something extraordinary about her. She is very ordinary. But God, in his grace, has given his blessing and favour. And it's an encouragement, I think, to ordinary people like you and me, in a world that's obsessed with extraordinary people, famous and celebrities, people with incredible talents, that actually God sees ordinary people like you and me, doing everyday jobs in an everyday way. God's extraordinary grace is gifted to very ordinary people because of his gracious nature. There are ordinary parents shown extraordinary grace. But secondly, we see that there's a promise of an extraordinary child. And you see that there in verse 31 to 33. I've got here hopefully a picture of a painting by Sister Grace Remington called Mary and Eve. The rescue of God's people is wrapped up in the promise of a miracle child. It's a regular theme throughout the Bible. Think of Moses, Isaac, Samson, Samuel, all the prophecies in Isaiah of Christ. But this promise, this promise of an extraordinary, miraculously born child who will save God's people, goes right back 
to the very beginning. It goes right back to the garden. And the nanoseconds after sin enters the world and breaks apart the world at the seams. And God's promise to fix what humanity broke. The promise to Eve of a curse lifter, of a snake crusher. And so this picture shows Mary consoling Eve that the shame and the brokenness that had been brought in by her and her husband would be lifted and the promise would be met in the child that Mary would give birth to. And behold, as 31 says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And Gabriel is very visionary, isn't he? I wonder if you noticed that. I think for generations we wouldn't have thought that was a particularly visionary statement. But here he's very clear, isn't he, that a woman has a womb. A person with a womb is a woman. And only women give birth. And Mary is promised this promise because she is a woman and able to do so in a way that Joseph is not. You shall give birth and you shall call his name Jesus. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, she said, and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And the serious point behind that, actually, though, is that this is her baby. Okay, she's actually raising this child. She's actually giving birth with all the pain and the discomfort that comes along with that. This is a real uh, birth and a real pregnancy where she's really going to feel all those things that every other mother feels, all the blessings, all the joys, all the struggles, all the discomforts, all the pain. He's a real baby to a real mother. And yet there's a disruption to the ordinary, isn't there? as a disruption to the ordinary world, because from the ordinary will come an extraordinary child. He will, look at verse 32, be great. He'll be called the son of the most high God. And God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Three promises that mean this is no ordinary child, is it? He will be great. And that's a striking thing to say about a place that's recorded in John's gospel. Some of Jesus' disciples say when they first encounter him and realize he's from Nazareth. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Anything and anyone cultured, religious or great came from Jerusalem, not a backwater town like Galilee. And yet here, the promises of one who will be great. But it's not just that he'll be really, really good and a statement of what he's like. Luke is referring to a prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 9 verse 1. But there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that is the region of Galilee. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He will be great. Secondly, this child was the son of God. And as such, he's the one who would represent God and stands to inherit God the Father's kingdom. Jesus was God's own son. 
But thirdly, there's a promise that he would be the eternal king promised to David. And again, this reference is an Old Testament promise. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And that's why the only extraordinary detail that we do get about Mary and Joseph, that distant connection to David, is there. Other than that, there's nothing about them that's at all noteworthy. But that little detail, that it means that Jesus would truly fulfill what had once been promised to David and everyone thereafter. That Jesus would come and would reign over Israel and free them and liberate them and bring prosperity again and bring all the promises of God's kingdom to fullness for them. And for these people, they must have thought that this was speaking about their current circumstances. Because Israel at this time lay under Roman occupation and control. We know uh, from chapter 2 that Luke pins this in a particular time in history during the reign of Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian. I have a slide for you, uh, hopefully here, that will show you a little uh, picture of him. Octavian was recognised very frequently as the divine saviour who had brought peace to the world. And it will be striking how Luke here and onwards will present actually Jesus as doing that and clearly Octavian as having made false promises and false claims over himself. But they also lay under Caesar's authority and King Herod's authority, a sort of vassal, a sort of puppet king. And there's a picture there for him on the right. And Joel Green, the commentator, uh, notes about Herod. The days of King Herod of Judea mark the period of Israel's subjection to a Roman client king. Regarded as an outsider, Herod encountered some opposition simply because he represented Rome to a people whom many chafed under foreign domination. Herod exacerbated these feelings by his secular power base, his extravagant building programs, the funds for which were extracted from the Jewish people, his blatant control of the temple and high priesthood for his own political purposes, and his wide-ranging efforts at continual reform of Palestine along the lines of Hellenistic, or that is, just Greek secular culture. The setting of the events of Luke's birth narrative, then, is one of struggle during the process of the consolidation of the Jews under Roman rule at the hand of a king noted for his tyranny. And so I think, as these three promises are given of Jesus, that he'll be great, that he was the son of God, that he'll be the eternal king promised to David to rule eternally forever in righteousness and justice, they must have thought that Jesus would surely be the one to free them from Rome and from Herod. And so everybody would have loved this idea. But there is something much deeper going on. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It's not just about a promise of a military king now who will liberate us from the occupying forces. It's not just about the present. In fact, God is answering his most ultimate and eternal promises of a family through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12. The house of Jacob. And the promise, therefore, is not just of a son 
but the son, the promised seed who would fulfill all of God's promises, the most extraordinary child of all children, promised to very ordinary parents, Mary and Joseph. And so thirdly, lastly, we see the God who provides against extraordinary odds. At Christmas, we're overrun with images of Santa Claus, aren't we? And they all come from the story of St. Nicholas, a very true historic person. And his story is amazing. Uh, St. Nicholas was orphaned as a small child during an epidemic. And so he set about giving away his inheritance to those who were in need. And so he actually spent much of his own life living in poverty and then imprisoned for his faith. We know he exists in part because he's recorded as being at the Council of Nicaea and defending the Orthodox uh, view of the Trinity against heretics. And so we have this legend of St. Nicholas. And yet that could only ever come about and pales in comparison to the provision of God. And St. Nicholas said so himself. He says, the giver of every good and perfect gift has called upon us to mimic God's giving by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. And we see here the God who provides against extraordinary odds. Verse 34, Mary asked the question we should be asking. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's scepticism here hasn't actually really touched any of the spiritual elements of the promises that Gabriel has reassured her with. It's simply the mechanics of how can this really be possible when I am a virgin after all? And that is the right question actually, isn't it? Sometimes the problem is things can be so obvious, it stops being obvious, but it is. And despite this, I wouldn't want you to get the wrong idea of Mary, because Mary's scepticism was subject to her faith. Again, just a few verses onwards, chapter 1, verse 45, says she believed that there would be a fulfillment. But there is a question there, isn't there? How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The power of the Holy Spirit would enable what seems to be impossible to be possible. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And that says something of Jesus' nature, isn't it? That he's set apart from the very beginning for God's purposes. That Jesus never became God during the course of his life. We've thought about that in John's letter, haven't we? But that he was always God from his birth and even before it. John quite rightly starts his genealogy of, of Jesus actually before he was ever born. That in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Gabriel says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so it's God's presence through his Spirit that makes this birth possible and that marks Jesus out as God even in the womb. And then to help ease any lingering doubts, there's a further reassurance and a further sign of God's power to provide miraculous children. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And why does God do this? 
Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And really, that is a summary of all of this section and God's purposes in all of these events, that he desires to show nothing will be impossible with God. It's reminiscent, in fact, actually, of the words to Sarah back in Genesis. Genesis 18, verse 14, after the promise of a son to her, who was also old and seemingly could not conceive children herself, is anything too hard or is anything impossible for the Lord? It makes sense that Luke might want to bring these two stories together since Sarah had much the same seeming problems as Elizabeth. Old, seemingly past the point of being able to have children. And so Mary can trust that God will deliver on his promise to her because of his track record then and now. And so God delivers a miraculous child to Sarah and to Abraham. And he is also doing so for Elizabeth and Zachariah. And if God can deal with the problem of old age and barrenness, he can also deal with the opposite problem of virginity. But the point is much, much deeper. It's that in each case, the children are children of paramount significance to the promise of God. Isaac was born to establish the nation of Israel. John as the forerunner to Christ and Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham and the further promise to Eve of that snake crusher who would lift the curse that's fallen upon the earth. God is the God who provides and who delights to do so when the deck is seemingly stacked against him. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary may have begun with a question of doubt in verse 34. How will this be, since I'm a virgin? But she ends with an amazing statement of faith, doesn't she? Mary was very ordinary, but she expressed great faith in her own way, doesn't she? Let it be to me according to your word. And I wonder what might happen in our own lives if we could pray those words with thought and mean it, that let it be to me according to your word. God is the God who provides. He not only promises, but he comes good on all his promises in Jesus. We see, firstly, ordinary parents shown extraordinary grace. One of the things here is about how ordinary Mary and Joseph were, and we're meant to see that. You might think that God would only really be interested in the great and the good, the significant and the influential, but God flips the expectations on the head. It shows that he comes for ordinary people, ordinary people like you and me. People who have nothing extraordinary about them, perhaps, but for the grace that God has shown them. His ordinary parents shown extraordinary grace. But secondly, there's a promise of that extraordinary child. The story of Jesus coming is all about the gift of an extraordinary child. The story is full of the hope that it's filled with because from his birth, and even before it, Jesus was God. 
And this is the moment that God himself comes down to earth to live with us and as one of us. It is extraordinary that God himself should lower himself to come and to live with us. It's extraordinary that God's answer to the brokenness of the earth through the sin that has entered into it would be to step down onto the earth. But it is. And there is the fulfillment of the promise of that extraordinary child, God's own son. And thirdly, we see the God who provides against extraordinary odds. The story of Christ's birth shows God once again providing despite extraordinary odds. God provides a saviour through a virgin and the forerunner through a barren woman. We know that our problem of sin is so incredibly deep. It affects our thoughts, our motivations, our fears, our desires. And because of that, sin is not just about what I do, but what I think and what I feel. In fact, sin cannot be separated from who I am. But God in Christ Jesus provides a saviour who frees us from the penalty and the power of sin. First John 4, verses 9 to 10. Let me remind you of them. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That God himself in his son Jesus Christ would die the death we should have died that we can have life in him. And that is the grace extended to you and that you're invited to taste once again as we share communion in a few moments. Why don't we pray and then we will turn to do so. Father God, we